0: Well, good morning. We're continuing our series today called The Last Word. As we've been looking at Jesus' last words to his disciples, started in the upper room in John chapter 13, where Jesus washed his disciples' feet, continued in John 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus taught them what they needed to know before he went to the cross. John chapter 17, last week we saw Jesus pray for his disciples, and not only for his disciples, but pray for us, those who would come to faith through their testimony. What an incredible, incredible thought that Jesus, our Savior, prayed for us. And today, we go into John chapter 18, and we see Jesus arrest, trial that would ultimately lead him to the cross. But this series, The Last Word, brings in this idea of these important last words that Jesus has for his followers. But ultimately, Jesus gets the last word at the cross when he declares, It is finished. The debt has been paid. Jesus gets the final word over death and sin and hell and the grave how many of you like to have the last word in an argument anybody if you are willing to admit that yeah we like to have the last word i've got four kids and and when they argue they they got to have the last word and as the dad sometimes i need to have the last word if you know what i'm saying that's enough stop stop talking stop stop just stop just stop you know you know how that goes But Jesus gets the last and final word, the cross. And on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, as he raises from the grave and declares victory over death and hell and the grave. So we've been in this series, The Last Word, and we're going to look in John chapter 18 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 18. And we're skipping over a little bit the Palm Sunday text, which occurs in John chapter uh, 12. In John chapter 12, we see Jesus enter the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And the people, Scripture tells us in John chapter 12, but also in the other Gospels, that, that people wave their palm branches and they declare, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Jesus comes as the king into the city of Jerusalem. John chapter 11 tells us the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And that really sets into motion the events of Holy Week that lead to Jesus' crucifixion. Because it was after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that the religious leaders say, we have got to get rid of this guy. I mean, now he's raising people from the dead. Everybody's going to start following him. And so they put this plot into place. It's also because of the resurrection of Lazarus that, that people who witnessed that incredible miracle have gathered up palm branches as Jesus begins to go into the city the next day. And they declare, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But as we will see this morning, even as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, being hailed and celebrated by the people in Jerusalem, being declared as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the Messiah. Even as he enters victoriously into Jerusalem, he knows exactly what he's getting himself into. Even as Jesus is celebrated and hailed by the people of Jerusalem, he knows in just a few days the tide will turn. And rather than, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And even on Palm Sunday as Jesus enters victoriously, he knows what's coming. This morning in John chapter 18, we're going to see that Jesus is fully in control. He's fully in control even as he faces the chaos of the crucifixion. And we can put hope in that truth this morning. So we're going to read out of John chapter 18. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read this text. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into the message this morning. So John chapter 18, starting in verse 1, it says, After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him and he still entered Jerusalem as the Lion of Judah, but also this morning as we sang the Lamb who would be slain to take away the sins of the world. And so, Lord, as we reflect on the reality of Jesus Christ, who was fully in control, even as he faced the chaos of the crucifixion, Lord, remind us that whatever we're facing in our lives, that you are in control. And it may seem like chaos, but you are working all things together for our good and your glory. So, Lord, let us find hope in that this morning. Let us find hope in the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. For those who are here this morning who don't know you as Savior, I pray that you would draw them and that they would turn to you. And in faith, submit their lives. Lord, speak to us through your word. Your word is truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. You can have a seat. Jesus was fully in control even as he faced the chaos of the crucifixion. As we read through these 11 verses, we'll just kind of break it down a verse at a time. And we'll see that Jesus demonstrates and displays that he is totally in control of the situation even as these soldiers come to arrest him Jesus is the one calling the shots not them (laughs) so verse one told us after Jesus had said these things he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden and he and his disciples went in to it Now, if you remember in John chapter 13, Jesus is teaching, and at the end of John chapter 13, he says, come on, guys, let's leave this place. But then we have the teaching of John 14, 15, 16, and the prayer of John 17, and there's a little bit of debate on where Jesus taught those things, because 13, he said, let's leave this place, but then he continues to teach. Some believe that they remained in the upper room until they left to the garden, Others believe that that they left the upper room and as they were walking through the city of Jerusalem, Jesus was kind of teaching them as he went. They probably ended up at the Temple Mount before they crossed over to the Garden of Gethsemane and maybe Jesus taught them there in the courtyard of the temple and, and prayed there in the courtyard of the temple. We don't know the details, but we know that ultimately Jesus and his disciples ended up in the Garden of Gethsemane. It tells us that they had to cross The Kidron Valley. I want to show you a map here on the screen just to help you kind of get an idea of what this looked like. So, uh, scholars and archaeologists believe that the upper room where Jesus and his disciples met was kind of down here in the lower section of the map, inside the walls of Jerusalem. So, maybe after Jesus said, let's leave this place in John chapter 13, they started to make their way up through the city, up to the Temple Mount, and Jesus is teaching them that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that they should abide in him, about the promise of the Holy Spirit that would come, that he had overcome the world. And, and then in John 17, he prays for his disciples. We don't know, but I believe it's likely that that probably took place kind of here in the Temple Mount. Because when Jesus finished praying, it tells us that he left and crossed the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. So right here is a gate. It's called the Golden Gate. It's the gate that Jesus probably entered into on Palm Sunday. But it's also the closest gate to get to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is this little green dot right here. This blue highlighted area is called the the Brook of Kidron. It's the Kidron Valley so Jerusalem kind of sits up on a hill, and the, and the hill goes down to the Kidron Valley and, and kind of comes up on the other side where the garden is and the Mount of Olives. So Jesus crosses here out of the Golden Gate. He crosses the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Brook, and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. I have another picture, I, I think, if you guys have it. It's a picture of, uh, from the perspective of the Garden of Gethsemane, looking up at the Golden Gate. Do you guys have that picture there? They're working on it. So let me tell you, no, that's not it. Um, (laughs) I think that was from John's message a few weeks ago. Uh, But the Kidron Valley, I told you the hill kind of comes down from the city. This was Passover week. And during Passover week, there were lots of animals that were sacrificed, the Passover lambs. In fact, because of the population of Jerusalem and, and Jewish people who would come from all over the world to be a part of the Passover festival, there were probably hundreds of thousands of lambs that were slain, maybe up to 250,000. It was recorded 30 years after Christ uh, that there were 300,000 lambs slain. That was recorded by the historian Josephus. But in Jesus' day, maybe 250,000 lambs that were slain right up here in the Temple Mount. And as they poured the blood of those lambs on the altar, after that they would wash off the blood with water, and that water and blood would kind of go through the city sewers and come down here, down the valley, until it got to the Kidron Brook. And these hundreds of thousands of animals that were slain, their blood probably would have been floating there in the Kidron Valley through the Kidron Brook. And as Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley, he would have crossed over This blood that was flowing of the Passover lambs that Hebrews tells us could never take away sins. And even as Jesus crossed into the garden, there would have been this reminder of the blood that he would spill. This area is probably about where the Garden of Gethsemane is here on the bottom of the screen. And you can look up and see this gate. It's called the Golden Gate or the Mercy Gate. That's where Jesus entered. It's probably where he exited to come to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a modern picture. It would have looked very different in Jesus' day, but the gate would have been there. So Jesus crosses, knowing what he would face. He goes into the garden, and of course, there was another garden in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, where humanity faced temptation and failed. But Jesus, when he came to this garden, he would face The temptation that he could have fled, he could have run, he could have called down 10,000 angels and avoided the cross. But he submitted to the Father's will. Because of his obedience and his righteousness, many would be made whole. So as Jesus crosses over the valley... Goes into the garden. He knows what he's facing. Verse 2 tells us Judas who betrayed him also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus went to this garden knowing that Judas would find him there. Can you imagine Jesus went to this garden of Gethsemane and he taught his disciples. It said many times they, they met there. He would have taught them there. He would have prayed with them there. They would have enjoyed time together there, and Judas betrays him in that same place where they would have shared moments of fellowship and intimacy together. But Jesus knew exactly where he was going, and he knew that Judas would go there to find him. Verse 3 tells us that Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. John uses this phrase, a company of soldiers. Literally, that means between two and 500 soldiers. This was uh, a term for the Roman soldiers, a company of, of the Roman legionnaires. It was between two and 500 soldiers. So, if that's what John is telling us, then it's possible that there were between two and five hundred soldiers going to the garden to find Jesus. It also tells us there were some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. These were kind of the security guards of the temple. They had weapons too, they had authority too in the city of Jerusalem. And so, probably several hundred people were coming out to find Jesus and his disciples in the garden, and they came with lanterns and torches. And weapons, they thought they might be in for a fight or at least some resistance or at least they would have to find these guys hiding in the bushes or something. But Jesus was fully in control. He knew where he was going. He knew they would find him in that place. As he crossed the brook and saw the blood, he knew what he would face. He knew Judas would betray him in that place. Jesus was fully in control of the place of his arrest. Jesus was fully in control of the place of his arrest. It's almost as if he had trained Judas exactly where to go for this time and this place. Tells us in verse 4, then Jesus knowing everything that was about to happen to him. Can you imagine that? Knowing everything that was about to happen to him. I get nervous going to the dentist, just saying Right? I mean, maybe, maybe some of you, there's things in your life that you don't like to do. Uh, I'm, I don't love confrontation. And I know if I've got to have a, conversa- a hard conversation with somebody, I get nervous. I don't sleep well. Those are, those are things that I do not look forward to. I've talked to some of you who have recently had surgery and you've, you've had to go through physical therapy or torture, as some people call it, and uh, and you know, man, I've got to go on Tuesday, and they're gonna, you know, turn me inside out. There's things in our life that we face and we dread, but it tells us Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He knew everything that was about to happen to him. Everything. He knew that he would be spit on. He knew that he would be slapped in the face. He knew that he would be blindfolded and mocked and ridiculed. He knew that he would have a crowd of thorns put on his head. He knew that they would pull the whiskers of his beard out of his face. He knew that he would be beat 39 times with a cat of nine tails, a whip with hooks and broken shards of glass in it that would tear his body apart. He knew that he would be nailed to a cross. He knew that he would be dropped into the ground on this cross and all of his bones would come out of joint. He knew that he would be ridiculed as he hung in that place. Jesus knew everything that was coming. But what does it tell us? He went out to them and said, Who are you looking for? He didn't avoid it. So I showed you a picture of that gate a moment ago, the golden gate or the mercy gate. Where the garden is, it it was in plain view. Jesus probably saw this detachment of soldiers coming with their torches and weapons. John doesn't record it in his gospel, but in the other gospels, it's recorded that Jesus prays in agony there in the garden. Maybe even as those soldiers are in view. And yet when they get there, he steps out to the front and says, who are you seeking? Jesus knew he was in control. Verse five, Jesus of Nazareth, they answered, I am he, Jesus told them. Judas who betrayed him was also standing with them. He knew all that he would face. He knew that he would experience the Pain of Judas' betrayal. In fact, in John 13, after he washed Judas' feet, he said, Go do what you have to do and do it quickly. And now he faces his betrayer face to face. Jesus knew that the other disciples would run in fear, that that Peter would deny him three times. He knew that he would experience the ultimate pain of being forsaken by the Father on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was fully in control of the place of his arrest. Jesus was fully in control through the pain of his arrest. What he was facing didn't deter him. What he was facing didn't cause him to change his mind about his purpose and mission, the reason that God sent him. Even through the pain, Jesus was fully in control. Even through all that he was about to face, Jesus was fully in control. Verse 6, when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. We're going to come back to that in just a minute because it's incredible what's happening in this story. Verse 7, then he asked them again, (laughs) who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. By the way, the name Jesus of Nazareth is the most kind of demeaning human term you can give for Jesus. After all, he is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus of Nazareth is is the most human term you can give to Jesus. This guy, Jesus, who comes from this town, Nazareth, earlier in John, it was said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what they call Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you I'm he, Jesus replied in verse eight. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. It's incredible to me that even in this moment, knowing all that he would face, Jesus is protecting his disciples. (laughs) Right, he steps to the front. He steps in front of his followers, and he says to these hundreds who have weapons and torches, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And then he says, if it's me you're looking for, then let these guys go. Let these guys go. This is not their fight. Have you ever experienced that in your life, right, where you're, facing something bad that's about to happen. Maybe there's somebody who wants to hurt you (laughs) and you're like, oh man, this is not gonna be good. And somebody steps in front, says if you got a problem with him, you've got a problem with me. (laughs) If you wanna get to them, you gotta go through me first. Whew, that's a relief. That's what Jesus does for his disciples. These guys who are about to, turn tail and run he steps out in front of these soldiers and says who you looking for I'm the guy let these men go take me leave them y'all remember that old Tim McGraw song don't take the girl y'all remember that it's the story of the little boy that didn't want to go fishing take my best friend Bo but don't take the girl and then one day, somebody, he, he, he's on a date with this little girl. And uh, he's a teenager now, and somebody comes in the alley to mug them, and he says, take everything I've got, but don't take the girl. And then the last verse, he's married now, and they're having a baby, and things are not going well. She's really fighting through the delivery of this baby and dying, and he prays, God, take me, but don't take the girl. That's the theology of country music, I'm just saying. I'm sure there's a book written on it somewhere. (laughs) Jesus says to these soldiers, take me, don't take them. Me for them. Me for them. That's what the cross is. The death that we deserved. The penalty that we justly deserved. And Jesus says, take me, not them. Take me, not them. Jesus was fully in control, and because he is fully in control, he protects his followers. We see it so visually in this passage, but I want to tell you, believer, I want to tell you, follower of Jesus, he is still protecting us today. He is still the lion of Judah. He is still the one who fights our battles. He is still the one who comes to our defense. He is still the one that protects us from the evil one. He is protecting us today. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. The reason we're told this guy's name is because He was a real guy, and he was an eyewitness to the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So John wanted us to know, you know Malchus? Go ask him about it. (laughs) In 1 John, the same disciple of Jesus, John, writes Another account, it's not a gospel account. It's just his teaching of what he learned from Jesus. And he says, we were eyewitnesses to these things. We have seen him and touched him. So he tells us about Malchus who was an eyewitness because this is a real, literal story that actually happened. After that, Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? The gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus healed the man's ear. It's not recorded in all of the Gospels. In fact, John is unique. His Gospel doesn't record all of the events that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. That's simply because those Gospels were written before John, and John says, you already got those. Let me give you my perspective. John has a very specific thing that he wants us to understand, and so he chooses from the incredible things that Jesus did, a volume that he tells us could not be contained if the whole earth was a scroll to help us understand Jesus heals this man's ear but more importantly what I want us to see is that Jesus says to Peter Peter put away your sword I have to drink this cup that the father has for me Peter there's a reason I came I came to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. I came to fulfill my Father's will. I came to obey him to the very end. I came to be the payment for your sin, Peter. I came to be your redeemer. I came to be your sacrifice. Peter, put away your sword because there is a purpose. And Jesus is fully in control The purpose of his arrest. Because one day in heaven, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit put this plan into motion. The Father said to the Son, Jesus Christ, All right, here's what we're going to do you're going to go, you're going to redeem humanity. And the Father said, your kingdom come and your will be done. Jesus was fully in control of the purpose of his arrest. He was in control of the place. He was in control through the pain. He, he, because he's in control, he can protect his followers. He can protect us. He was in control because he knew the purpose. But ultimately, Jesus was in control because he is God. God. So let's go back quickly to John 18, 6. It's this verse where they say, who are you looking? Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus told them, I am he. And they stepped back and fell to the ground. Now, I want you to see something. I, I underlined here the words I am. Because in the original language, in the Greek, that's the only thing that occurs there. The he has been added in English to help us kind of make sense of it. But Jesus literally said this when they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And at that, it tells us that they fell to the ground. Now, this phrase, I am, is a name of God. Comes from Exodus chapter 3, where Moses asked God when he sees the burning bush, you're sending me and who should I say sent me? God replied to Moses, I am who I am, and this is what you can tell the Israelites I am has sent you. In Hebrew, the name I am is Yahweh, it's the personal revealed name of God. In Greek, it's ego I me. Ego I me. That is the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew name Yahweh, and they both mean I am. It's God's revealed personal name. It, it tells us that he is, that he was, and that he is, and that he evermore shall be. That he is preexistent, that before anything else existed, he was. And it's not just that he was or that he will be, it's that it's that in, in God's omniscience and omniscience, omnipotence and and omnipresence that he is the same. He always is. He just is. We have a history. God has no history because he's just always been and he always will be. He will continue to exist just as he is. And I don't know how we can wrap our minds around that. Frankly, we can't. But it's what Jesus is telling these guys in the garden And through that, they get a glimpse of the glory of the great I am, Yahweh. And when they get a glimpse of that glory, it tells us that they fall down. They didn't trip. Jesus said, I am. And for a moment, he revealed a little bit of his glory and they fell to the ground. When Moses meets God in the burning bush and God says, I am that I am. He says, hey, Moses, take off your sandals, bro. This is holy ground. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel experiences the I am and he is undone. Isaiah experiences the I am and in his letter and it tells us that he falls down as if dead. In John, in the book of Revelation, John experiences the great I am and he falls to the ground. Woe is me, I am undone. When we experience the glory of God, we fall to our knees. Philippians 2 tells us that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. And when Jesus revealed just a sliver of who He was, the great I am, they fell down. I want to quickly go through several passages of, passages of Scripture just to help you see that this statement of Jesus here in the garden was, was not an isolated event. He uses this phrase, I am, several times in the book of John. The first one is in John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. This is the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Tells us in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. But here's what it really says, put the other, uh, the next slide. Jesus told her, I am the one speaking to you. Again, that phrase, I am. It doesn't have a participle participle kind of defining it. It's just the statement, I am. It's unusual. Jesus used it on purpose for her to understand that he is the Messiah. I know the Messiah who's coming will explain everything, and Jesus said, I am. Am. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He sends his disciples on a boat back to Galilee and he hangs out up in the mountains to pray. And it tells us in the evening, he walks out onto the water. Verse 19, after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat. And they were afraid, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Or literally, it says, I am, do not be afraid. Again, he is declaring to them that he is God. In John chapter 8, there's three different times in this passage where Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. I'm gonna read the whole passage and I want you to see what Jesus is saying starting in verse 23. Jesus says to these religious guys, listen, he is bold with them. You're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you, you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Who are you, they questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. What I have heard from him, these things I tell the world. They didn't know he was speaking to them about the Father. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, by the way, that is talking about the cross that would come, then you will know that I am, and that nothing That I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. Then down in verse 54, Jesus says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My Father about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You don't know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, then I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. The Jewish leaders replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, before Abraham, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying, because they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple, in John chapter 13 when Jesus is speaking to his disciples at the last supper starting in verse 18 he says I'm not speaking about all of you I know those whom I've chosen but the scripture must be fulfilled the one who eats my bread raised his heel against me he's telling them about Judas betrayal the reason I'm telling you now before it happens is so that when it does happen you will believe that I am Again, Jesus is making it plain. Then in John 18, verse 5, when the soldiers say, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they fall to the ground. Jesus is in control because he is fully God. Now, I told you, John has a specific perspective in his gospel. In John chapter 20, he tells us what it is. John chapter 20, verse 30, John says, Jesus performed many other things in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus is fully in control even in the chaos of the crucifixion. He was in control of the place. He was in control even in the midst of the pain. Because he's in control, he protected his own. He was in control of the purpose of his arrest and crucifixion. Because he is fully God. Because Jesus is fully in control, we can trust him not only with our salvation, but with our life. I want you to see this morning that as we go into this holy week, we think about all that Jesus faced was no accident. It didn't even happen to him. Right, sometimes bad things happen to us, This didn't happen to Jesus. He was in control of the whole thing. (laughs) He was in control of the whole thing. In another one of the Gospels, it tells us that when Peter lopped off the guy's ear, Jesus said, Peter, come on, put that thing away. Don't you know if I wanted, I could call to the Father and he would send down a legion of angels. In other words, I have all of creation at my disposal, your sword doesn't amount to much. And still he submitted and surrendered to the cross. Now practically this morning, there are two things. One, because of this, we have access to salvation. Because Jesus willingly submitted, we have access to a relationship with God through the sacrifice and obedience of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you're like these soldiers, the guys that came to arrest the son of God. And when Jesus said, I am, and they fell down on their tails, they got back up and they still arrested him. And we read that and we go, come on. A guy put somebody's ear back on. He said a word and you fell down and you're still gonna arrest this guy. But we do it all the time. God has revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ and we still rebel and we still fight and we still, yeah, God, but you don't really mean that. Yeah, God, but I don't really want to submit to you in that, yeah, God, but. And we fight and we rebel and we make excuses and we're like these idiots (laughs) who arrest the son of God. God is in control. And maybe you've been fighting and maybe you didn't even know you were fighting. This passage, these guys, do you think they knew they were arresting the Son of God? I don't think they did. It was the Son of God. That, that is the truth. That is reality. Because they didn't believe it, didn't change who he was. And maybe you don't believe. You say, I, I, can't, I can't get down with all this stuff. I have too many questions. Your questions don't change the truth. I mean, maybe these guys thought they were doing a good thing. It doesn't change the reality that they nailed the Son of God to a cross. Here's the good news. God is bigger than all that. And God used the pain of this moment to usher in our salvation. And maybe you've been fighting against God. Scripture says, don't harden your heart like they did in the rebellion. Paul says, look, stop fighting against the goad. The goad is this stick that, that, you know, the farmer would use to move the cattle along. And he gives us this picture that, that God is trying to get our attention and we just keep fighting against it. God, leave me alone. So maybe... You need to submit and surrender to the God of the universe and come to him for salvation this morning and stop fighting him. Maybe you just need to be reminded this morning that in the midst of your pain, God is in control. That there is a purpose to what you're facing because God is in control. That Jesus is still protecting you He's still protecting you because he is in control. Maybe you just need to be reminded of that truth this morning, encouraged by that truth this morning, and I pray that that would cause you to respond, not only with worship, but also with obedience. Okay, God, I trust you. I don't understand it all, but I trust you. By the way, if I asked you to trust me, maybe I'll make good, maybe I won't. But when God says, trust me, he he is a God who knows what's best and who wants what's best and more importantly, who has the power to pull it off. Trust me is only as good as the person who says it. And I try to keep my word. I do my best. I, I, I try to go out of my way, but I don't control everything. But when God says you can trust me, when Jesus says you can trust me, you can trust him. So this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to you. And as he does, I pray that you would respond. This morning, maybe your response is to come and surrender, to stop fighting against the Savior, to surrender your life to him. I I would invite you to be bold. In a few minutes, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And as we do, if that's you, I want to invite you to come down here to the front. I'll be standing here. Just say, I need... To surrender to Jesus today, and I I wanna show you how you can do that. Know Him as Savior. It starts with faith. Maybe you're facing chaos today, maybe there's pain and there's hurt and there's betrayal in your life. This morning, Jesus is still in control and He's still fighting for you. Maybe you just need to come and pray today and say, Lord, help me. Help me to trust you. Whatever it is, I pray that that you wouldn't just hear the words, but that you would respond to the words of God today. Let's stand up. Lord God, we thank you that you are in control. Jesus, we thank you that You were fully in control even as you faced the chaos of the cross. So Lord, help us to trust that this morning. Because ultimately, (laughs) you showed us that you were in control because you rose from the dead. So help us to trust you this morning. Lord, as you move us, help us to respond. For those who need to know you as Savior, I pray that you would move them to a response today. For those who are hurting and suffering, I pray that you would move them to trust you more today. We love you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, I invite you to respond.